Well, good day, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, my name's Dave, uh, if we haven't met before. Uh, I had a terrific week, kind of, uh, with Christmas and New Year. It's a big week, isn't it? But by far and away, the most exciting thing to happen, as I'm sure many of us will be in agreement, uh, was the Ashes. Do we have any cricket fans? Anyone? Yes. It's funny, you come out of the woodwork when we win. Normally, I ask, and no one says a word. When Australia beat England, better than any Christmas pudding. Okay, that's just... The best. Now, every year, for those who don't know, we play a test match, Australia play a test match on Boxing Day at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. The Melbourne Cricket Ground is Australia's largest stadium. It fits 100,000 people. But believe it or not, this week I, I read a statistic that says that's not the crowd uh, record size at the MCG. The MCG's record size was actually set in 1959, and it's 143,000 people crammed in. Believe it or not, it's not to an AFL game, thankfully or a cricket game, uh, or a music event. Uh, in 1959, 143,000 people poured in to see this guy. Who knows who that is? Billy Graham. Billy Graham, for those who don't know, was the world's uh, most famous preacher and evangelist of the 20th century. He spoke to more people probably than anyone in the history of the world about Jesus. Hundreds of countries, millions and millions and millions of people. He came to Australia in 59 uh, at the invitation of pastors and ministers um, in Australia uh, for, uh, for around 10 weeks to speak around the major capital cities. What happened in those 10 weeks uh, was beyond what anyone could have possibly imagined. Uh, the numbers alone are staggering to, 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 to comprehend. Uh, in 10 weeks, he spoke to over 3 million people. In 1959, the population of Australia was 12 million. It's a quarter of the population. Um, in Sydney alone, he spoke over around two weeks to 980,000 people. The final day, he spoke to 150,000, crammed in at the SCG in the showground. There was no screens. There was people crammed in to listen to, like, you know, speakers in the 1950s. Okay? That's how much people were gripped by what he was saying. Most excitedly of all, uh, over the 10-week period, um, they estimate around 130,000 people made professions uh, of faith in Jesus for the first time. On a personal note, that includes my father, and my uncle, my auntie, and many family friends. Can I ask, was anyone here converted in 1959? Oh, praise God. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I'd proud that. And let me tell you, um, even... Uh, if you weren't converted in the 1959 crusade, I guarantee you, you, you probably know someone who was, uh, or you know someone who's the child of someone who was. The impact on Australia was incredible, incredible. Over the next few years, Christianity um, grew. Churches were full, Sunday schools were overflowing, Bible colleges had queues to get into them as people. Men and women considered entering the full-time ministry. Fast forward 60 years to today, though. Let me say, January the 2nd, 2022, facing forward to the year ahead. Um, and as you survey that the spiritual condition of our nation, um, I think we can all agree um, it's not good, is it? It's not like that. Things uh, can seem bleak. Uh, the media would often describe Australia as a post-Christian nation. Have you heard that term, post-Christian? And that's a term that means Christianity was once in the ascendancy of our culture, um, but no longer. Christianity is, if not dead, dying, withering away. Um, and many, of course, think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Now, the statistics will back that up. Last year, McCrindle, uh, who were a sort of survey polling company, um, they did a survey about the spiritual feelings of people, uh, a widespread survey, um, and the stats are alarming. 8% uh, at best, 8% of people attend 
a Bible-believing church with any semblance of regularity at best. The vast majority of Australians never go to any kind of church ever for any kind of occasion besides weddings, funerals and maybe a baptism. Millions of Australians don't even know a single Christian. Don't, not one. Um, and that's not a number that's, you know, uh, unfortunately shrinking. It's a number that grows and grows. Uh, it, it's quite possible to look at the spiritual state of our country and lament and just weep. The situation appears um, hopeless to our eyes, doesn't it? Yet, I, I want to say to you as we stand here at the beginning of 2022, um, that what we need to do as we think about our country... And what we need to do as we think about our culture, our community, the people that we know, our friends and our family, um, we need to stop viewing the situation with human eyes. Um, because with just human eyes as we view what's going on in this, in this country, in our world, it is hopeless. But what we need to do is view what's going on with God's eyes, as revealed to us in his word uh, in the Bible. You see, when you view um, hard soil like Australia with God's eyes, when you view um, reaching people for Jesus uh, through what God has said, um, well, you begin to realise that all is not lost. Uh, The situation is not hopeless. In fact, as Christians, we should be living in an ever-present feeling of hopefulness. Um, God has not given up on Australia. Um, There is hope for us. The question is, what do we do? If you and I were to strategize together, put our, our brain power together for 2022 and come up with a plan to reach Australia for Christ, what would we do? Well, thankfully, we don't have to do that. <laughs> um, Any conversation about evangelism, and that's a word that really means reaching people, talking to people about Jesus, uh, must always begin with Jesus. Um, Jesus says he's revealed to us in the Bible, and I'll ask you if you do have that Bible passage from Matthew in front of you uh, to leave it open. Jesus says he's revealed to us in the Bible is the master evangelist. His life was all about um, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news um, that he gave his life to achieve for us. Uh, And it's in watching Jesus as he interacts with the world and views people and and also how he conducts evangelism, reaches people, that we can learn much wisdom about how to to approach the world that we live in. And so today, what we're doing, even though there's many places in the Bible that we could go to to observe Jesus as an evangelist, what we're going to be doing uh, is really looking closely at this passage we had read to us from Matthew chapter 9 uh, to take note of what we learn about reaching people for Christ from Christ. Now, there's a very specific reason we've gone to Matthew 9. Uh, I chose Matthew 9 today. And that's because Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the biography of Jesus written by Matthew, um, up until this point uh, in the Gospel, has been primarily focused with establishing Jesus' identity as King. Now, if you remember Matthew 1, if you, if you know Matthew, Matthew 1 starts with the genealogy, of, the royal genealogy of Jesus. Then there's a focus on his words and his actions to establish his identity as Messiah, promised king, the king. But here, at the end of Matthew 9, well, a new focus is given to us. Not a replacement of Jesus as king. No, Jesus is, is still very keen for people to understand who he truly is. But rather, an additional focus of Jesus' ministry is added in. Right here, uh, we have a moment where Jesus adds on to his proclamation ministry 
a time of training for his disciples. And you'll see it here in verse 35 to verse 37. Jesus proclaims, teaches, preaches. He does what he continues to do, but now he brings into his disciples, engages them, equips them, trains them, and releases them for their role in his mission. Because you see, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, we're not just to observe what's going on from a distance. The call for us is to not just be following Jesus as king in our personal lives, but also publicly uh, as we proclaim the gospel. And so today what we're going to be doing is quite a simple thing. We're really looking at just two issues, um, two key themes that are raised in this passage. Number one, um, what does Jesus tell us about how to truly view the world? When Jesus talks about the world and, and the world around us, what does Jesus say is the problem? Number two, uh, what training and equipping does he give his disciples uh, that we can learn from and that we can see? So I'll begin with thinking about Jesus. Have a look at uh, chapter 9, verse 35 to 37. And I want you to consider three things in particular about how Jesus views the world, the problems of the world, but also the solution that's given. First of all, look at verse 35 and 36. And I want you to notice how Jesus views people. How Jesus views people then and also people today in a great extent. In verse 35, what are we told? Jesus is traveling around Galilee and he's visiting town and village, all of them. There's around 200 towns and villages in Galilee, equaling the ground, 3 million people. And, and we're told there that Jesus is surrounded by crowds. Crowds have come to listen to Jesus as a, as a preacher and a speaker, but also have come to be healed by him. So you can guarantee that the crowds who surround Jesus are full of people with terrible, terrible illnesses, disease, deformity. How does Jesus feel about these people? Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now just pause there. Compassion is not a word that means he feels sorry for. It's far stronger than that. It really feels, really means he feels sorry with. Um, it's, it's a sort of a, a co-equal suffering. You care so much about that person. It's a feeling in the gut. That in your gut there's a pain as you see someone else suffer. Now Jesus feels that way towards the crowds around him. But what is it that makes him feel that way? What brings forward that compassion? What does verse 36 continue to say? He had compassion on them, you see that there, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, those words harassed and helpless seem quite small, but they're much more powerful than that in the original language. They mean attacked, ripped apart, torn apart like sheep attacked by wolves. Now, that's an important description for us to comprehend all of us here because this is not a description of the physical condition of the crowds. In other words, this is not a, a, a description of what's going wrong with their ailments physically, with their disease and deformity. No, no, this is a description that harks all the way back to the first reading that we had from Ezekiel 34 and beyond in the Old Testament of the Bible. This is a description of the spiritual condition of the people around him. The people around Jesus had been poorly led by the Israelite leaders, by the Pharisees and the scribes. These were people who, rather than heal lepers, rather than pray for them, would throw rocks at them to get them out of there. These were people who led the Israelites horrifically. And as a result, the people around Jesus were spiritually lost. They were not saved. They didn't know God. How does Jesus view the world? 
He views the world eternally. How does he view the individuals in the world? How does Jesus think about people as eternal beings with eternal futures and whose eternal resting place, one way or the other, is of primary importance above all things? I ask you right now, if you were to ask the average Australian on the street, what is the biggest problem Australia is facing in 2022? What would people say? It's not a trick question. What would people say? COVID. If you ask the average person in this room of the biggest problem facing Australia in 2022, we might be tempted to say the same. Yet when Jesus views the world, it's not to, um, to minimise the, the, the physical problems of this world. COVID is an issue. All those things, they're issues. They're real. They are a problem. But the biggest problem Australia is facing is not the coronavirus. It's Christlessness. It's people who do not know God, who are not saved, who are facing a Christless eternity. Now that leads me to the second thing I want you to notice from Jesus' um, viewpoint, and it's the solution that he offers. Look at verse 35. We're told Jesus spends his time doing three things. Um, he teaches the word of God in the synagogues. He preaches through the Bible for people to, to hear. He does miracles Heals types of disease and illness. But I want you to focus here right at the center of verse 35. Jesus spends his time proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Now, now what does that actually mean? Well, we don't have a lot of time to, to delve deep into the concept of the kingdom of God. Um, but suffice to say, what Jesus is saying here, what he's referring to, is what we as Christians call the gospel. And the word gospel does mean good news. The proclamation of the gospel is the literal word for evangelist. But what's the content of the gospel? Well, the key things for you to take note of is that the, the content of the gospel is that Jesus is God's appointed king. God has promised one day his kingdom will come. And we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, God, let your kingdom come. Now, on that day, it will be a day of great delight for some, but terror for others. Because on that day, our sins will be revealed. Judgment will happen. And yet, for those of us who love Jesus, who trust in him, it's a great day. Because Jesus has died and risen from the dead to take our punishment. The king came to earth, gave up his crown, and took up a cross. Amen. He did that for us. The king has risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God for eternity. He reigns and rules over the earth. The kingdom is the gospel. Preaching the good news of the kingdom is Jesus proclaiming the gospel. And we need to be absolutely clear when we think of Jesus. When you think of Jesus and, and the chief purpose of his ministry on earth... Front and centre, right in the middle of it, is that Jesus is, was, remains an evangelist. When the word became flesh, he took on the flesh of a missionary. He came to seek and save the lost. He is the gospel and he preaches the gospel. Now that's his priority. Why? Well, that leads me to the third thing I want you to point out about Jesus' viewpoint of the world. Why does Jesus prioritise the gospel? Well, simply put, because he views people with eternity in mind. When you view people with eternity in mind, as front and centre of your mind, as Jesus did, 
What you know is that what people need more than anything else is not health care, it's not food, it's not even clothing or housing, it's the gospel. The biggest problem people are facing is eternal judgment. The solution? The gospel. It's only the gospel that saves. But it's not just that. Have a look at verse 37. Why does Jesus spend his time proclaiming the gospel to people? Verse 37, he says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. No matter how hard the ground might seem, no matter how, how difficult the soil, no matter how, how much rejection you face or discouragement that you've encountered in your personal evangelism, Jesus' proclamation to his disciples, to all of us who would follow him, is that the gospel is not a theory. It's not a theoretical argument to be discussed by Christians alone. No, no, no. The gospel works. And for those of us who are Christians here today, we say, Amen. The gospel saves. And Jesus tells us there are people waiting to hear it. And that's what that term harvest is about. Waiting to hear it and to respond to it with joy, delight, repentance and faith. That word harvest is a rural term. What I know about farming could be written on a postage stamp so I won't waste your time with it. Except to say, Google tells me, harvest is a time of season, time of year when the farmers would bring in the crops. And they rejoice. It's, it's, it's a metaphor and a symbol that Jesus often talks about to, to represent fruit and growth. So even if the world outside is hostile, even if people are aggressive or antagonistic, even if no one is interested, Jesus says, that's not true. That's not true. My people are out there even if they don't know it. Now, I ask you, what would it look like if we viewed people the way that Jesus did? At Christmas time, I wonder how your Christmas lunch was. Mine was, okay, we sat there um, with sort of distant family members um, and, and, and um, we discussed politics, global warming, the environment, COVID, 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 and finally religion. It was amazing. What a wonderful time that we all had. I agree with my wife before Christmas lunch that I'm not going to get involved in any of these discussions unless it gets to religion. Um, Not to argue with people about religion, but to try and talk about Jesus in those discussions. My agreement lasted around, I think, 90 seconds. Um, And I really went, boom, I'm into this. Let's go. When the conversation finally hit the topic of God, I was so upset. Man, I've been trying to witness to some of these people for, for a decade. And they were so aggressive and so antagonistic and so hostile. But how should we view people who don't know Jesus, even if they're aggressive, even if they're hostile, even if they're antagonistic, even if they're apathetic, even if they're disinterested? With compassion. How would we view people who are confident and and happy, who are successful and prosperous in life, who don't know Jesus? With compassion. Because even if they don't know it, and of course they don't know it, they are spiritually lost. And so we had a feel towards people, not contempt, but care. Not anger or rage, but love. Now Jesus knows that's a very difficult thing for us to do. There's no doubt about it. He knows people better than we know people. He knows you and me better than we know you and me. And so what Jesus then does, as I referred to earlier here in Matthew 9, is for the first time he really calls his disciples in to train and equip them in the mission they will be involved in 
as his disciples. You, you see it here. Um, he said to his disciples, verse 37, he calls them in uh, and begins to talk to them. He begins the process of training and equipping them for their role in the great mission of his life. Uh, and as much for us, for those of us here who are Jesus' disciples, to learn from as he trains and equips those who follow him as their king. Let me point out three things again that we learn from Jesus' training. Look at verse 37. Um, he said to his disciples, remember he says, it, sound, it sounds good at the beginning, doesn't it? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, there's no shortage of evangelistic opportunity. There's no shortage of lost people. I wonder if you were to um, uh, try and diagnose why more people in Australia aren't Christians, um, or why there's a spiritual lethargy in this country. Well, we can point the finger at uh, Hollywood, the media, entertainment, uh, you know, politics. It's very easy for us to point externally to the problems of evangelism in our nation, to the spiritual state of the country we live in, and yet those things might well be true. However, the way Jesus tells it here is the evangelistic blockage is a shortage of workers. A lack of disciples willing to engage in the hard yards of evangelism. Now, this is not just a reference to pastors and ministers, although, yes, it is that as well, uh, a call to people to, to consider full-time ministry. But this is also referring to ordinary believers, Christians prepared to evangelize. As we survey the spiritual state of our nation, it's easy to point outwards, to point externally. But for a moment, let's put up the mirror and think internally. Jesus makes it clear there's no shortage of the lost. What there is is a shortage of Christians who are willing to reach the lost. So what do we do? Well, Jesus trains and equips, teaches and disciples, his disciples, with, with a two-pronged plan. Verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to... Send out workers into his harvest field. The first thing that the disciples are to do as followers of Jesus is to pray, to come before the Lord of the harvest, the one who is in control of salvation and judgment, and pray. But take note here, have a look again. What are we to pray for? This is surprising. We're not told to pray for the lost. Do you see that? If you were to pray for anything in evangelism, if you do pray for evangelism and mission in Australia, we pray for the lost, generally speaking. But no, no, no. We are to pray for workers. And workers to be sent out. And the word sent out here is more aggressive. It means to thrust them out, to throw them out into the harvest field. Now, why do you think Jesus does that with his disciples? He's not saying it's wrong to pray for the lost. It's a wonderful thing to pray for the lost. Of course it is. But why does Jesus tell his disciples, pray for workers? Well, I think the answer is then found in the second part of his strategy. Look at verse 1 to 5 of chapter 10. Jesus tells his disciples to pray for more workers, and then what does he do? He immediately sends them out as those workers that they prayed for. They became the workers they had prayed for. You know, when you pray for, for the people you know who do not know Jesus, when you pray for them to be saved, it is a wonderful thing indeed to do that. Please do not stop. Keep praying for people you know who don't know Jesus. But when you pray for workers, when you pray that God would send someone to the people you know and love to tell them about Jesus, 
Something suddenly, eventually becomes clear, doesn't it? God, please send someone to the people I know who don't... Wait. He has sent someone. It's me. Not me. You. It's us. The heart of King Jesus' ministry on earth is the gospel. For his disciples, you know what? Some people would argue that evangelism and mission is reserved solely for um, gifted evangelists or just for the apostles in this day. This, this can't be a reference to us, but my dear friends, I want to suggest to you something. Um, I want to suggest to you that it is not possible to truly follow Jesus as your king. With everything that entails, to walk in his steps, to imitate him, to walk the way that he walked as, as Paul, Peter and John all tell us following Jesus as king is to look like without then growing to value the things that he valued, without having your life shaped by his character, without viewing the world the way that he does, and to consider becoming like Jesus, sanctification, without subsequently caring enough for the lost to reach them with the message of Jesus. It's nowhere in Scripture. When we understand the call to follow Jesus as king means to do what he did, our lives must change uh, as a result. Um, I read a story once about um, uh, in northern Africa, uh, there was a a leper colony. Uh, Leprosy, obviously a terrible condition that still exists in the world today. Very, very contagious uh, and you can't get rid of it. Um, and the leper colony in this nation um, was really given a village uh, and walls were put around it and all the lepers were put inside of it and stations were, soldiers were stationed outside to keep the lepers in. And once they were put in, they never got out. They weren't allowed to get out. Now inside a village, a little community arose. There were shops and farms and wells. There was a graveyard. But some local Christians asked the obvious question, who will reach these people with the gospel? Who will share with them the news of Jesus? So they, they didn't buy a book and throw it over. They didn't drop newsletters. Two young men went in and they never came out. There's other stories of, of Christian men and women selling themselves into slavery to reach slaves. There's stories of, of men and women packing their possessions in coffins as luggage because they knew when they went, they were not coming back. What could make people do such extraordinary things? It's trusting in Jesus as saviour, but also following him as your king. Evangelism is a holy activity, a godly activity, a sanctifying activity. And I want to say to you, I don't think there's really anything like it to grow you and shape you. And so we've got these, uh, these two perspectives that were given, uh, Jesus' view of the world and Jesus' expectations of his disciples. Uh, and they're really one and the same thing, aren't they? Jesus views the world through eternal eyes. He sees the greatest problem is godlessness, but he knows the great solution is the gospel. And for his disciples, well, he expects them to view the world in the same way and then to take action as a result of it. And so the take-home message for us might seem pretty simple, I want to say. We need to live our lives on whose business? The king's. We need to be on the king's business. We need to be in the harvest, working in evangelism. It sounds so simple. Yet it's anything but, isn't it? 
I want to say that I think evangelism um, is the hardest thing in the world to do. It's the most difficult. And if you find it difficult, uh, that's a good sign that you're sane. Okay? If you don't, that's awesome. But mm. <laughs> Why do you think we find evangelism so difficult? Let me ask you right now, what, what is it that most of us who share about Jesus or have tried to do that, what is the thing that makes it so hard? Does anyone want to share it out? Rejection, excellent. Anything else? Ridicule, this is terrific. I beg your pardon? Alienation. Rejection, ridicule, alienation, all of which are symptoms of and create fear. We have fear of alienation, fear of ridicule, fear of... Rejection. And I want to say those are legitimate fears. Fears that we won't know what to say. Fears that will ruin the relationship that we have. Fears that we will go too far, that we'll, we'll stuff it up somehow. And yet I believe um, there is another fear at play deep, deep down in all of us that actually creates the ones that we're talking about. And it's probably the deepest fear that any of us have, and that's the fear of humiliation. Humiliation is a word that means shame or embarrassment, and it's one of the things, in fact, it is the thing that most people hate more than anything. John Calvin was a French theologian in the whatevers years ago, and, and, and he said most people, I'll, I'll, I'll summarise, most people would rather be punched in the face than embarrassed. We would rather go through physical humiliation than embarrassment. The other day we had carols on, and um, I was speaking at the front of carols, and I don't find that embarrassing, maybe I should, but... Um, um, there's hundreds of people there. I knew most of them. It was great. I was really, really having a terrific time. But then as I walked down the hill, as one of the songs was going, I tripped up. And I just wanted like a drill to put a hole in the ground. It was the most... Imba- no one even noticed. Why are we so afraid of humiliation? Well, simply because, let's be completely honest with each other, it's because we care so deeply about what other people think of us. I used to work at a boys' school, and I used to ask them, put your hand up in the air if you care about other people's opinions. How many, did that? How many put their hands up? None of them. And then I'd say, you know why you didn't? Because you care about other people's opinions. We are captured and prisoners to the goodwill of others. We, we want to be liked. And so when it comes to evangelism, we're often paralyzed in what we're doing because evangelism is by very nature humiliating. It's difficult, it's awkward, it's hard. We face so much rejection and and so much ridicule. It's so easy for us to be discouraged. And yet I believe this passage is not just one to deepen our convictions of the need and the call for us to be in evangelism, but rather one that outlines the method for our practice. I think here in these verses, Jesus shows us exactly what to do. Firstly, we need to view people differently. We need to view people the way Jesus does. When Jesus viewed people, what's the word he he felt? What's the emotion? Compassion. He he loved them. He, He held them not in contempt or fear, but with love. What we need to fear is the reality of hell for people who don't know Jesus, far more than we fear the opinions of those very same people. It's not easy, and it's not natural. It's hard for us to feel this way, and yet when you do, when you proactively 
implant compassion in your brain and your mind when you're thinking of other people, when you're speaking to other people. Let me tell you something. You do notice a change. It's far harder to be afraid of someone who you are empathizing with. It's far harder to be scared of someone when you love them and have compassion for them, when you view them with eternal eyes. The aggressive atheists at the kitchen table, compassion. The lethargic teenager who doesn't care, compassion. The discouraging dejecting person we know who maybe was once calling themselves a believer now isn't and and it's so hard to engage with compassion how can we do that because we have been recipients of the greatest compassion in history secondly we need to change how we think about evangelism we need to think about evangelism the way that jesus does we are terrified about evangelism because we're terrified about the response we're terrified of rejection and ridicule and i want to say if that's you good You should be. In fact, the problem is that you're not scared enough. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, and and listen to the the advice, uh, the prophecy that Jesus gives for his people about to step out on the mission field 2,000 years ago. What does Jesus say? I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be as shrewd as snakes, as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Jesus guarantees rejection and disapproval as a bare minimum. Is that discouraging? No. It's liberation. Because when you encounter discouragement and rejection and ridicule in your evangelism, it's not a sign of failure. It's a sign of faithfulness. The fear of humiliation controls us because we're desperate of the approval of others, and yet Jesus tells us, and what we need to come to terms with, and we need to get over this as soon as possible, is that evangelism will always be difficult because people will never approve of the gospel unless they're saved by it. We will be the aroma of life for some, but the stench of death for others. And so when we face failure, do not stop. God uses failure and hardship to grow us and change us. Finally, we need to think about the harvest the way that Jesus does. We often um, live as if we believe in a God who can, but won't. Who could, but doesn't. And yet the way Jesus views the harvest is that God is not done saving people. Jesus is king, he's the Lord of the harvest. So how should we approach this land we live in? Well, consider how Jesus approached a land that he lived in that was almost entirely non-Christian in the face of guaranteed persecution, prosecution, violent attack and hardship. He did not view this world as beyond his reach, but desperate for it with expectation. It's easy for us to think Australia is beyond saving, that revival is impossible, that the people, the individuals we know, they're too hard-hearted, that we're too post-Christian to see conversions, so we won't go, we won't witness, we won't call others to obedience and faith, and yet that's not what the gospel tells us about the world. It's not how Jesus views it. There's no doubt many of the statistics about Christianity in this country are alarming, but those were not the only statistics that came to light in that survey done by McCrindle last year. Let me give you some others. While 8% of people in this country don't know a single Christian, 79% of Australians know at least two. Now let me ask you, what do you think the people that you know who aren't Christians, who know you as a Christian, what do you think they think of you? 
Well, the, the group were asked which words describe the Christians that they know. The answers, third place, kind. Second place, loving. First place, caring. The media might hate you, but your mates, they like you. They might disagree with what you say, but they respect the life that you live. Now listen to this one. In answer to the question, how open would you be to changing your current religious view, non-Christians open to change from either extremely open down to slightly or somewhat open were 26%. During the experience of COVID-19, one in two Australians responded, 47%, that they think about mortality more. A similar proportion, 47%, think about the meaning of life more. Now, what do you make of this data? My friends, 50% of our country are thinking about life and death more. 79% of people know two or more Christians and like you. But here's the one I want you to think about. 26% of people, one quarter, one out of four, have indicated that they are open to thinking more deeply about Christianity. They're open to an approach to talk about it. That's six million people. What's the problem? What's the issue? We don't know who they are. Which ones are they? I don't know. Three out of four people are not interested. (laughs) Three out of four people will reject you. They won't be open. But one out of four are. So the question is, are you willing to go through the three to get to the one? Are you? Are you willing to face rejection and discouragement in the knowledge that there are people out there who want to know. You see, until Jesus returns, we're not living in a post-Christian country. Forget that term. We are living in a never-endingly pre-Christian nation. Jesus is still saving people. And he will still use you to bring people to himself. Yes, it's risky. Yes, it's difficult. There are no guarantees. Make no mistake about it. But every single one of us in this room who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord and our King, we are here because someone at some point took a risk in telling us or telling our parents. The same God who breathed life into our dry bones is still at work gathering his people to himself. So what can we do? Well, we can pray. Now, you might have heard of Billy Graham, but who here has heard of Edward Kimball? Anyone heard of Edward Kimball? Edward Kimball was a shoe salesman who worked in Chicago in the 19th century. He was a youth group leader at his local church. He was given a a diagnosis that he was going to die very soon at the age of 40. And after that diagnosis, he um, decided to tell every boy in his youth group about Jesus passionately to evangelize them, to, to see them become Christians. One of the boys in his group was called Dwight. And Dwight was particularly objectionable, um, difficult. And yet after um, persistence of Kimball reading the Bible with him, explaining the gospel to him, Dwight became a Christian. Dwight's full name is Dwight L. Moody. Has anyone heard of Dwight L. Moody before? Now, many of you wouldn't, of course. Dwight L. Moody was the Billy Graham, really, of the late 19th century. He became an incredibly well-known evangelist. Now, let me just run through this very, very, very quickly. Moody went to England to preach, and whilst he was there, a man called Fred Meyer was converted. When he was converted, he became a preacher and travelled back to America. He preached, and a man called Will Chapman was converted. Will Chapman became a preacher and he preached and a man called Billy Sunday. Has anyone heard of Billy Sunday? Billy Sunday was converted. The early 20th century's greatest evangelist. Sunday, as a preacher, raised up another evangelist with him called, and I wish we still named people like this, 
that this preacher is called Mordecai Ham. Oh, now that's a name. You get a pet pig, Mordecai Ham. <laughs> Mordecai Ham was not much of a preacher. He didn't see much fruit as an evangelist. However, in 1924, Ham preached at a small service in Charlotte, North Carolina. And one evening, a tall, lanky teenager came forward and put his trust in Jesus. His name was Billy Graham. He would later preach in Sydney where my dad was converted. The first Christian in my entire family, um, which changed the trajectory of my entire family. For me, for my children, for this. Very few of us will be Billy Grahams, but all of us can be Edward Kimballs. People who love Jesus. We stand here at the, look, at, the, at the very beginning of 2022. This country is going crazy, isn't it? A nation of people looking for meaning and purpose. Will you be a worker in the harvest this year? Will you pray? I'm going to pray now, but I, I, I want you to think of four people you know. Can you do that right now? Four people you know who don't know Jesus, four of them. And I want you to pray, as I pray in a moment, for workers for the harvest, but also for yourself to be a worker in the harvest and for those people. And I'll give you time to do that. Let us come before the Lord of the harvest and pray for revival in this country. Millions would be saved this year. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel, for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus died and rose from the dead for us. That he proclaimed the life-saving message of salvation. That someone somewhere took a risk on telling us Lord, we pray for Australia. We pray for more workers in this harvest. For courage, for opportunity, for faith. That they would be sent out and tell people the truth. We pray for the lost. We pray for millions of people, this entire country, to be saved this year. In 2022, let this be the year of the greatest revival this country has seen, Lord. Lord, we pray for the lost that we know. And we name four of them now before you right now. Lord God, we pray that we would be workers in this harvest. That we would have courage, that you would give opportunity, open doors. And we pray that not one out of four, but all four will be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you heard before, next week we have the summer series starting. Uh, the topic is, what is a Christian? Four weeks specially designed for you to bring someone. Not just invite them, bring them. Come with them, hang out with them. Invite them to the least weird people, that, you know, introduce them to the least weird people that you know. Um, so not me. We have life series in term one, day life during the day. Um, you know the gospel you can read the Bible with people. We'd love to encourage you to do that. What better thing for us to do now than to respond in song?